Welcome back to the Plowcast. This is the second episode in our new series covering our issue, Pain and Passion. I'm Peter Momsen, Editor-in-Chief at Plow. And I'm Susanna Black-Roberts, Senior Editor at Plow. This episode is very special. It's the extended play version of Peter's interview with Tom Holland, the uh, historian and podcaster, um, not the actor. We had to cut down the interview for the print version, but here you get the whole of it, except for the part where Tom's mom called and he had to answer his cell phone and say that he was on a Zoom doing an interview and could he call her back, which I had to cut even though I thought it was really sweet. To introduce him, he lives in London. He's an award-winning historian, biographer, and broadcaster. He is the author of many books, most recently Dominion, which is sort of the story of Christianity through the centuries. He co-hosts the superb podcast, The Rest is History, and is a regular contributor to The Guardian, The Times of London, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times. You can see him many places. So welcome, Tom. Today, we're very eager to talk to you, Tom, about the history of how people look at pain and suffering, such uplifting topics, but really central to the human experience. And particularly, I'm interested in talking with you about how people have seen and understood the meaning of suffering over time and how that changed particularly as a result of the influence of of Christianity. Uh, That's obviously one of the big themes in your 2019 book, Dominion, and it's also something that you touch on on many episodes of your wonderful podcast, The Rest is History. So to begin with, I thought it would be interesting to contrast two artworks, one from before Christianity and one from afterwards, and see if there's talking about those might cast a little light on what happened uh, when the Christian idea of suffering became part of the cultural landscape. So they're both artworks that are currently in Rome, and you can see them there. One is the sculpture Laucon. Uh, the, uh, the story is told in the Aeneid of Laucon and his sons who were swallowed up by serpents, and it'd be great, Tom, if you'd tell us the story. Um, and the other is Caravaggio's Crucifixion of Peter. Uh, they're both very compelling artworks, even without knowing the stories behind them. They're the types of artworks that kind of grasp at the tourist's collar and make them stand still. You see these, you know, muscular, dramatic figures facing the ultimate moment of suffering and imminent death. And one's from before Christianity, and the other is obviously a Christian artwork. So what happened between the two of these, and what's going on? What does it mean? So, so the statue of Laocoon, as you said, it, it tells a story that appears in the Aeneid, written by the great Roman poet Virgil, um, a, a few decades before the birth of Christ. And the setting is the Trojan War, and lots of the episodes from the Trojan War that, that people are familiar with, most notably the sack of Troy and the Trojan horse and all that stuff, is uh, actually comes from Virgil, not from Homer. Um, and Laocoon is a part of that story. So the Trojans are, are gazing at this strange horse that has been seemingly left by the Greeks before the walls of their city. Uh, the Greeks seem to have sailed away. And um, they're thinking... <laughs> Brilliant. Let's 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 take it inside the walls of Troy. What could possibly go wrong? And Laocoon is a priest. He comes and says, "You're mad. This is lunacy. Why are you doing it?" 
um, and he reaches for a spear and he hurls it at the side of the horse and there's this kind of clanging sound um, suggestive perhaps that there are, are men in armor hiding inside it and at that moment snakes appear from the sea coiling and they come up to Laocoon who is offering a sacrifice uh, with his sons and they they taught they they crush Laocoon in their toils um, and this seems to uh, the Trojans an absolute marker that Laocoon by striking the horse has committed an offence against the gods and that this is why the snakes have been sent. But in fact, this isn't the reason the snakes have been sent. This is because Laocoon has done something quite else. He uh, And so the snakes are crushing him for a quite different offence. And what you get there is the sense that uh, mortals are the playthings of the gods. Um, and this is an idea that goes right the way back to to Homer um, and to the Greek understanding of the gods that human beings are essentially you know they may some may be the favorites of the gods but uh, there is a controlling destiny that they cannot buck and that often uh, the, the gods take pleasure in destroying humans um, and that's the, uh, the, the, the sense that Shakespeare actually many, many centuries later articulates in King Lear that like flies to wanton boys or we to the gods, they kill us for their sport. Uh, and you have that sense in, uh, in the passage given by Virgil. However, I, th I think it's, it's, it's worth pointing out that Virgil in his poem, he does have a sense that the fate that is ordained by the gods will ultimately work out for the good, not just of, of the Roman people, but for the entire world. Um, so the Roman Empire that goes on to be forged by Aeneas, the hero of the Aeneid, who has escaped from burning Troy, uh, in the long run, um, it's the mission of the, the God-given mission of the Roman people to, to overthrow the proud, to spare the weak, and to bring order to the entire limits of the earth. And that perhaps is why for Christians, Virgil comes to be seen as a, as an almost Christian poet. So there's another poem in which he he seems to prophesy the birth of Christ. He he foretells that a a, a child will be born imminently, um, and will will bring peace to the entire world. Um, and so that's why Virgil ends up becoming Dante's guide in the Divine Comedy. So Virgil is a kind of interestingly ambivalent poet, um, and he was seen by Christians in the Middle Ages as a kind of guardian standing on the threshold of of the new Christian era, so he that statue, the statue of Laocoon, you know, there it's interestingly ambivalent. The other artwork you mentioned, the, the Caravaggio showing the the crucifixion of Peter. Um, Peter is crucified upside down because he doesn't want to. Uh, seen that he is aping the example of his lord and master who christ who, who who like christ perished on the cross um what is what is i think absolutely uh, expressive of a very radical change from the from the classical period is that the squalor the shame the humiliation that is implicit in a crucifixion has been transmuted by centuries of Christian history so that it is Peter who is the hero of this painting. Um, he is 
he is not being mocked by the gods. He is not uh, a creature whose hopes have been dashed by fate. Um, because, of course, we know that the heirs of Peter will succeed the Caesars as the effective masters of Rome and as the popes will stand at the head of the Christian church. Um, and Caravaggio painting that in Rome is surrounded by the glory and the splendor of papal Rome. And so there's an inherent tension there between um, the suffering that was in display in the in the painting and the grandeur of the context in which um, Caravaggio is painting it. So in both cases, you have a sense of a context that is um, provided by what the viewer knows is going to follow. So we know what is going to follow uh, the death of Laocoon, the destruction of Troy, but also the founding of Rome. And likewise with Peter, we know what is going to follow. The uh, Peter will indeed em emerge as the rock on which Christ Church is built and um, all the glories and the splendours of papal Rome will follow. Um, so in some ways they're very different, but in other ways I think there are kind of analogies there, there are parallels. Well, let's get uh, back to the crucifixion of Peter in a moment and stick with uh, the Roman and, and Greek ideas of suffering a little bit first. Of course, you know, pain, is a huge theme in those aspects of ancient culture that have survived for us. Uh, if you think of the rather uh, gruesome descriptions of bodily pain in the Iliad, for instance, um, there's no doubt that this was part of life, something that people thought about. Uh, but one thing you bring out in, in your book, Tom, and, and, it's something that probably many people have thought about over the years is uh, pain is thought about from the point of view of the lucky, the, the happy, the, those on top, um, the pain, the suffering of those who are enslaved or are in the bottom half of society uh, don't really count. Is that a kind of fair? Well, I, I, I think, Pain has different moral resonances um, for the Greeks and the Romans. So the ability to withstand excruciating pain is becomes a measure of of a man. Um, you know, uh, Achilles doesn't burst into tears when he gets hurt. That's the whole point. Um, and likewise for the Romans, um, the ability to withstand pain, to withstand excruciating ordeals of agony and blood again are the measure not just of of an individual but of the entire citizenship of rome so uh, the pages of livy uh, when he's writing you know the uh, so the pages of livy where he's writing about the early history of rome are full of examples of this so a classic one is uh, musius scivola who uh, is cap he, he he infiltrates the enemy camp is captured is told to reveal what he he knows and as a marker of his contempt for that he thrusts his hand into the fire until it's consumed and he doesn't once let out a, a, you know, a hint of of pain or agony uh, and this is exactly the kind of story that the romans adored um you know it 
the ability to withstand pain is what it's all about. Conversely, the pain that is suffered by those who are at the bottom of the pile, this also serves as an index of greatness, of moral strength, because their pain is contempt contemptible. And so the pain that is suffered, say, by a slave who is nailed to a cross is humiliating, is pathetic, is contemptible. Uh, no one admires the, the pain that is suffered by a slave on a cross because um, there is there is elevated pain and there is servile pain. And the servile pain is to be mocked and despised. The pain that is endured by a hero becomes the measure of a hero. Let's talk a little bit more about crucifixion in the ancient world, because this is obviously central to what we're going to be talking about in this interview later. Why is it impossible to imagine, you know, from the from the Roman point of view, why is it possible impossible to imagine suffering on the cross to be a, a triumphal kind of pain? Because the whole point of it is to humiliate and degrade um, it, it is the punishment that is seen by the Romans as paradigmatically suited to a rebellious slave. Uh, and the reason for that is not only that it is excruciatingly painful, um, not only that it is protracted, so you may, you know, you, you, you could survive on the cross for two, three, four days, uh, but also that it is public. Uh, you know, you are you and you are up there uh, like a piece of meat, uh, either nailed or roped or suspended or impaled uh, on a piece of wood on a tree, and your sufferings are objects of public ridicule. There's nothing you can do to to brush away the birds who might peck out your eyes or attack your genitals. Uh, there's nothing you can do to stop people from watching your gasps and your 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 heaving breath as you struggle. To, to lift yourself up so that you can gasp for air and it's this that that makes you as as a slave who's been put on a cross serve as a billboard of roman power um so the the, the famous example of that is uh which will be familiar to everyone who's um seen kurt douglas as spartacus is when uh the roman general crassus having defeated spartacus's slave rebellion takes the captives, puts up uh, crosses along the entire line of the Appian Way, the great road that leads south from Rome to the heel of Italy, um, and uh, and puts slaves along the entire length. And these are, are billboards advertising both Roman power and Crassus's achievement in suppressing the slave rebellion. And likewise, out in the provinces, where there's this kind of assumption that if, if a defeated enemy have submitted to Roman rule, then essentially they have taken on the character of slaves and therefore anyone who rebels against Roman rule is effectively a slave. This is also the penalty that is visited on rebels against Roman rule out in the provinces and that is the fate that is suffered by Jesus. He is crucified as a rebel against Roman power as the titulus, the, um, the, the, the board on his head that is affixed on the orders of Pilate says you know, he is punished because he is the king of the Jews, and there can be no king of the Jews in a Roman province. It's interesting, as you point out, that the Romans themselves were quite hesitant to speak too much about crucifixion. Yeah, they found it uh, sordid, um, uh, unpleasant, 
And so even as they used crucified slaves as a way to rub the noses of you know slaves provincials whatever in the penalties of 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 what rebellion would be um so at the, the, the same time they felt that it was kind of beneath them to to represent it in art to even to kind of write about it which is why actually the only records that we have you know the detailed accounts of uh, um the process that led to uh, crucifixion are the four that we get in the gospels um, I mean, we do have we do have accounts. So there, are, there's an account by Josephus, the the, um, the Judean writer, who describes the um, the terrible Judean revolt against Rome, the destruction of Jerusalem, and he describes how Titus, the Roman general, before the walls of Jerusalem to try and intimidate the rebels, um, the soldiers crucify vast numbers of captives, and they do it in a whole range of different ways. But he doesn't describe what the actual you know what it is like to be sentenced to that what the uh, the process is um how long you might spend on the cross what happens to the body once the person is dead it's only in the gospels that we get that and they of course are not writing as as romans josephus even tried to rescue some of his friends didn't he yeah so he he manages he secures permission from titus for one of his friends to be brought down but it's very telling i think that that the friend dies anyway. I mean, that gives you some sense of the uh, the horrors that are suffered on the cross. So this gives us some sense of why the first Christians were also hesitant in speaking about the cross, it seems, right? They spoke about the scandal of the, the, the cross. They were aware that it wasn't intuitive uh, that someone who had died this way... Yeah, I, I mean, the... the the first person who describes it as a scandal uh, is, of course, um, the author of the earliest Christian text that we have, namely uh, St. Paul. Who, and he, he says absolutely that this, you know, it's a stumbling block to, to the Judeans, to the Jews, um, but, it, but to everyone else, to the Gentiles, to the Greeks, to the Romans. It's a scandal. And he understands that. And I think there's a sense in which his letters are... You know, you're, you're, you're kind of hearing him thinking aloud as he wrestles with the implications of the fact that Christ suffered this. Um, and everything that he's writing is an attempt to, to say how this could be. Um, you know, it's upended his expectations of God's plan so radically that he can never kind of arrive at, I think, a stable sense of, of of exactly what it means um and I, I think that although paul absolutely recognizes the the fact that that jesus was crucified lies at the heart of everything that jesus is you know mission is and therefore how he relates to god's plan what is happening the, the very character of the world the very character of god the very nature of god's relationship to humanity everything has been upended by this um so the cross is absolutely at the heart of of uh, everything that paul's writing about but at the same time there is a kind of you know an embarrassment about it because it is the most shocking thing imaginable which, which is the kind of the point and I think that you see that throughout all the early Christian writings. So going into the second century, you have Christian writers who seem embarrassed and reluctant to talk about it. 
uh, into the third century as well. You have the, you know, this is an attack point for critics of Christianity to talk about Jesus as someone who suffered death. You know, both pagan and Jewish, uh, you know, they, they return again and again to this. And even once um, Constantine has converted and the Roman Empire starts its process of becoming largely Christian, um, there is a, a reluctance to pay to, to, to portray Jesus on the cross. Um, so one of the earliest portrayals of it by a Christian um, is an ivory in the British Museum that was uh, done in the um, early 5th century. So that's a century after Constantine's conversion. And it shows him basically as an athlete. Uh, he's, he's nailed to the cross, but he's looking unbelievably buff. Uh, you know, he's kind of honed and lean and muscular. Um, and he's got the loincloth of an Olympic athlete on. Uh, and his expression is is absolutely kind of calm and, and, and dignified. And that's a, a tradition that in the, certainly in the Orthodox world um, is is one that that persists throughout the centuries right the way up into the present. There's a reluctance to dwell on the sufferings, the um, the, the physical agonies. And that is one that that tradition, you know, this is the tradition that will culminate in, in the, the painting of Caravaggio that you we, we began with. That's one that's much more specific to Latin Christendom, um, for, for, I think, for very interesting reasons. So let's talk about the, the Caravaggio, uh, the crucifixion of Peter, because, of course, this is one portrayal of many Christian portrayals of, of martyrdom, where the instruments of death um, become a sign of triumph, right? Um, right. You, you yeah. only have to think of uh, the Sistine Chapel and the portrayal of the saints in heaven at the last judgment, you know, uh, Bartholomew with his flayed skin, uh, Lawrence with his gridiron, etc. What's going on there? Well, all these sufferings, the sufferings of the martyrs, they, they have value because it's an imitatio Christ, because it's an imitation of Christ. As Paul says, you know, if 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 this, you know, without the example of Christ, without the fact that he rose from the dead, it would all be madness. It would all be folly. It would have no significance. Suffering would simply be suffering. But because Christ has has provided this model of suffering and triumph over suffering, therefore those who follow him can share in it. And so, at the back of um, the portrayal of the saints, including the, the martyrdom of, of St. Peter, is always the image of Christ on the cross. So I think that um, to understand why Caravaggio is, is painting St. Peter in the way that he is, as, as someone who is, you know, it, it's a very vivid, very realist portrayal. This is an old man. He is clearly suffering. This is not a portrayal of him in the way that uh, Christ was portrayed in that fifth century ivory. You know, this is not he's not looking a figure of dignity. He, you know, he, he is properly suffering. And that stands in the line of the portrayal of Christ as suffering. And that's something that emerges in Latin Christendom around the year of the millennium. It's around the year 1000 that you start to get portrayals of Christ in his full suffering on the cross. So just before the year 1000, um, there is uh, a crucifix is sculpted showing him dead on the cross. And over the centuries that follow throughout the course of the high middle ages, the emphasis on Christ's sufferings become 
more and more intense and the sense of identification that Christians feel with those sufferings again becomes more and more intense. Um, and the cult of the martyrs is in that sense it's uh, it's 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 an expression of the identification that that Christians in the Middle Ages are feeling with the sufferings of Christ himself. Um, and that suffering is seen as enabling you to identify yourself with Christ in a way that perhaps otherwise might not be there. So there's very, I mean, very, very early on, um, even, you know, way back in the second century, there's a, a record of um, martyrs who are thrown into um, the, the arena in Lyon. And the description, you know, there are several people of noble birth there. Um, including um, a, a woman of noble birth, but we're not told her name. Instead, we're told the name of uh, one of her slaves, a female slave called Blandina. And Blandina is a Christian like her mistress, uh, suffers terribly in the arena. And at the climax of her sufferings, the author describing this tells us that Blandina resembles Christ, that she, you know, her, she dies resembling Christ on the cross. And that's a kind of right at the beginning of Christian history. That is an absolutely paradigmatic insight into the way that the Christian understanding of the crucifixion and its implications for those who follow Christ, how subversive it is, how totally it upends the social and gender norms that had prevailed in the Roman Empire, because for Blandina, a female slave to be compared to Christ, when her mistress is not compared to Christ, um, the men in the arena are not compared to Christ, it's this female slave. Um, and as a martyr, the early Christians believed, she would be escorted you know she wouldn't have to wait for, for 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 the day of judgment to to enter the palace of heaven as a martyr blandina would be escorted straight to the inner sanctum of the palace of god which in the roman eyes you know this is this is a place that only the the, the most elite can penetrate you know if you think of caesar's palace on the palatine uh, nobody unless you're very very elite can get to the the inner sanctum to meet caesar himself so likewise that is how they envisage the, the, the palace of God. And yet Blandina, this female slave, will be go straight there and be seated by God's side ahead of everybody else. And that's the radical potential that Christians see in what suffering can open up for those who are prepared to consecrate their suffering to faith in Christ. Um, and the aftershocks of that, the reverberations of that, even as the understanding of what happens to the dead evolves over the course of Christian history, that that endures and remains and explains what you know what, what is strange, what is what is I guess weird about um, Caravaggio's painting. This is the index of a really radical reconfiguring of the meaning of suffering and um, the implications that it has for humanity and humanity's relationship to both the afterlife and to the divine. Okay, again, some housekeeping before we continue with the rest of our discussion. A heads up, for those who are new, we have a new format. As opposed to each episode containing two segments, as we've done in the past, 
we're switching to just one segment per episode. But you're not getting any less content, you're getting even more. Rather than just having six weeks on and six weeks off, we're just going to give you an episode every single week. There will also continue to be Plow Reads. Those are audio versions of Plow articles. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, on Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be back with the rest of my conversation with Tom Holland after the break. And to, at least in its better moments, uh, Christianity's also reconfigured how people think about people who are lower down the scale. Uh, Of course, because the last shall be first. You know, I I believe you spent years uh, studying for instance, ancient Sparta, uh, Julius Caesar. There's one remark I read from you where you said at one point you realized that you couldn't fully sympathize with these figures' uh, approach to other human beings. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> there's, there's a kind of innocent quality to the callousness, say, of the Spartans or the Romans by our lights. Um, I, I cited Caesar in Gaul, uh, who, who is said to have, have slaughtered a million Gauls and enslaved another million. And for Caesar, not only you know, not only is he kind of unperturbed by that, he's positively glories in it. Um, and likewise, I, I wrote about Leonidas, the king who dies at, at Thermopylae. Uh, so the hero of, of the film 300, it's the absolute archetype of, of um, doomed heroism. But he was king in a city that um, depended for its functioning on uh, being served by a vast population of slaves, of helots, as they called them. Um, and again, he, he, he had no qualms about this. He, you know, he thought it was the order of the world. Now, the, um, the way that the Spartans ran their state, they had annexed this, this neighboring city, um, turned the population into these, into these helots, into these slaves, kind of bred them to be as as placid and servile as possible, uh, would kill any of them who seemed too uppity. Um, this was the inspiration for um, Hitler's plans for Poland and the lands of the Slavs in the East. Um, and of course, the Third Reich to us is the absolute embodiment of evil, perhaps in a way that, you know, in a way that Sparta isn't. And I think the reason for that is that the Third Reich stands in the context of a Christian civilization for whom uh the absolute contempt for the suffering of others is seen as uh, unforgivable it's seen as 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 uh, an offense against the shared humanity that we all have um whereas for the spartans they didn't have that context um and so i think that that may be why we 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 judge the spartans less harshly than we judge the nazis of course not everyone has been a fan of this radical change you've described uh Friedrich Nietzsche, you know, famously referred to Christian approach to morality in general, but specifically to the question of the suffering of the non-Uber mentioned as slave morality. Uh, the assumption that we should take the side of history's underdogs struck him as 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 contemptible, uh, contemptible. As weak. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he he um, he he refers to the blonde beast being um, gelded and neutered by Christianity. Um, you know, he gets taken from the forest and and made into a monk or whatever. Um, 
and that of course was was that idea the idea that christianity was a kind of sapping of the pre-christian world the the uh, 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 a neutering of the the pagan virtues of heroism um and strength and power and indeed cruelty uh was hugely influential on the nazis and fascism in a way was uh, you know as its name suggests it derives from the the, the birch rods and the axes borne by the the bodyguards of roman magistrates um it, it was a, a conscious attempt to roll back uh the centuries of christian history and return to that kind of primal ferocity and uh, an emphasis on glory and power that uh, that the fascists saw the greeks and the romans embodying while simultaneously um embodying everything that was modern and new and gleaming so uh, planes tanks jets whatever um and it's that fusion of the pre-christian and the post-christian that was the absolute essence of of fascism and i'm sure of course was fundamental to the ability of those who signed up to fascist ideals to commit the atrocities that they did uh, however i mean it, it's important to acknowledge that christians over the course of the past 2000 years themselves have been more than capable of inflicting appalling atrocities so even though christians may worship um a god who suffered horribly on an instrument of torture um that has not prevented them of course from inflicting atrocities and tortures and sufferings on people as well and that of course is is the great paradox of christian history whether or not it's justifiable as history there's an interesting essay by the anarchist priest ivan illich where he uh, makes a connection between the late medieval interest in the sufferings of Christ and the refinements of torture by the Inquisition at the same time. Well, um, I, so I've actually just been, <laughs> just been recording a series of podcasts on the so-called Cathars, uh, who, who were not actually called Cathars, but the people who were defined as uh, heretics by the Roman church in the beginning of the 13th century um, and a crusade was proclaimed against them and for 20 years uh, the lands of southern France were terrible uh, sufferings were inflicted on them I mean uh, holocausts they were described as holocausts by those who took part in them and exultantly so the burning of entire cities the burning of 300-400 people at a time this was seen as, uh, as, as something to be celebrated and in the wake of that um inquisitors were introduced so the friars dominicans in particular but also in due course the franciscans um to uh to wean people off their heresy and this to us seems something terrible because the idea that you shouldn't have freedom of conscience um strikes modern modern humans as, as as something monstrous and appalling but i again i think the story is slightly more complicated than perhaps uh, either protestant or enlightenment or or new atheist perspectives on it some might sometimes be tempted to think because actually the inquisitors are taking inordinate efforts to 
persuade the people that they are investigating. So that's what an inquisition is. It's an investigation um, to see the error of their ways. Uh, the, the inquisitors do not want to condemn the people that they are investigating to the flames, a, a, a heretic condemned to the flames. You know, that is a mark of failure. And again, I think I think that there is a kind of an interesting contrast there to say the atrocities that were committed um, in very much the same region uh, several centuries later in the wake of the French Revolution, when the revolutionary armies moved into um, uh, the, uh, the outer reaches of France and inflicted monstrous atrocities. The, the, the notorious statement that is associated with the, the war against the Albigensians, the crusade against the Albigensians, came from the papal legate, who, uh, after the incineration of an entire town, is said to uh, have been asked by one of the crusaders, um, how do we recognise the heretics uh, and how do we distinguish them from those who are, who are good Catholics? And the, um, the papal legate is said to have proclaimed, kill them all, God will recognise his own. But actually, although he may well have said that, it's attributed to him 10 years after the actual event. Actually, the, the, the inquisitors are not quite so brutal. They, they are concerned. In contrast, you get a very similar statement by the commander of the revolutionary armies who are moving against the, the counter-revolutionaries in the wake of the French Revolution, who's asked very similar, and he says, yeah, kill them all. <laughs> you know, it's all for the good of the revolution. Um, and because the French Revolution is consciously anti-clerical, is consciously setting itself against uh, what it sees as the kind of the feudal reactions of Christianity, therefore that sense that every human being is created in the image of God and therefore has to be treated potentially as an image of Christ has gone. As of course, in due course, it will be gone as well when the communists, both in Russia and say in China or wherever, uh, similarly will launch their campaigns of persecution. So there is, I think, um, a kind of a, an intriguing tension within Christianity between the desire to burn out, to root out, to extirpate those elements within the Christian people that seem to threaten it, which is absolutely how um, inquisitors and, and, and papal councils in the Middle Ages did come to, to frame heresy. But simultaneously, a, a kind of anxiety about that, a nervousness about that. Um, and that's why I think that that even today uh, the, the the Inquisition is and indeed the Crusades are always held up as examples of um, the savagery and the brutality of of which religion is capable and Christianity specifically. But of course, the standards by which we condemn them are themselves Christian. Um, the, the 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 revolutionary wars in the in in uh, in the wake of the French Revolution and still more. Um, the uh, the mass killings of, of the communists in the 20th century uh, were wholly without such inhibitions. Um, they, they wholly lacked the framing that Christianity had provided, even as they are driven by deeply Christian kind of motives, the desire to um, to see that to see that the last shall be first and the first shall be last to to bring it to, to kind of bring a secular equivalent of the new jerusalem to, to to birth on on earth um so all these kind of uh the the the, the tension between the desire to bring about what is 
to, to uplift the poor, the suffering, the weak, and to um, to downcast the strong, which is such a kind of important part of of revolutionary uh, motives since the French Revolution. Um, that's clearly driven from a kind of Christian impetus, but at the same time, um, the fact that the revolutionaries themselves discard doctrinal Christianity enables them to force it through with a degree of brutality that even the Inquisition at its very worst uh, was reluctant to, uh, to, to, to invoke. As someone growing up in an Anabaptist community, one of the things you're kind of raised with is the story of the early Anabaptist martyrs from the 1500s. And of course, the persecution of the Anabaptists at that time by Catholic and Protestant authorities was quite brutal. But what always struck me was two things. Number one, um, as you were just saying, the fact that right up until the moment of execution, uh, those being executed were being urged to recant and in most cases would have gotten off pretty close to free had they done so. The other is uh, uh, the fact that there were some cases of women who were uh, pregnant, uh, condemned to execution. In those cases, uh, the executioners would wait till the baby was born. Uh, there's a, a kind of solicitude in the midst of the the ferocity that always kind of struck me yeah but it's i mean i i think it's an inherent tension within christianity it's kind of the idea that you have to be cruel to be kind uh, is kind of there right from the beginning um you know paul says that there are no jew or greek um in christ but the jews notoriously they want to have their distinctiveness dissolved into um a kind of universal brotherhood um, and so right from the beginning, Christians are, are, are uncertain how they should respond to that repudiation. And the Jews you know, for, for 2000 tragic years have been the objects of incredible displays of Christian cruelty. So likewise have have pagans, have Muslims and over the course of the high Middle Ages, heretics as well. And what you do with people who reject the Christian message is, you know, it's an excruciating dilemma that has 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 worried and perturbed Christians over the course of history, and to which there have been many different answers. And some have have um, have argued the cause of a complete tolerance. Others have said, uh, no, um, if we if if we allow Christianity itself to be corrupted and destroyed, then how does that serve God's message? And so. In turn, perhaps that justifies um, uh, persecution, but it's been an enduring problem, and I think that it's you know it's an enduring problem for the liberal society as well that has emerged from Christendom. What do you do with illiberal people? What do you do with uh, in a democracy with people who reject democracy? It's 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 an enduring enduring problem. Let's return to uh, the just looking at how these Christian ideas of suffering have influenced people through history. And I thought it'd be fun uh, as we conclude this interview uh, to look at a few specific figures um, through this lens. I don't know if you have any favorites you want to go for, Tom. Otherwise, I could just throw a few names at you. Well, I, I mentioned uh, Blandina. 
uh, the slave girl who who died in the arena in Lyon, uh, and and she always strikes me as a kind of you know such a fascinating figure right at the start of the Christian story, uh, and the nobility that Christians saw her suffering as bringing that it redeems her from her slavery, um, and elevates her to the you know the highest possible rank. Uh, and I think that that is an idea that has been so fundamental to, to to Christian history, and it's amazing to see it there right at the beginning. And you have you have others uh, who take that idea, who don't suffer martyrdom, but apply, you know, that same kind of lesson uh, in other ways. One person who has always struck me as especially impressive from the Middle Ages is Elizabeth of Hungary. Uh, right. Who yeah. I I lived in the area where she uh, near the Vartborg for about seven years, and so she always really impressed me. There's a kind of gruesome relic of her, I believe, in the church there. Um, but it's a type of story that really doesn't make a lot of sense. No, without, not at all. So without that Christian frame, yeah. So so she is of royal birth. Um, this is we're, t- we're talking um, early 13th century, so the same time as the pretty much the same time as the Albigensian Crusade. Um, and what's interesting is that she is, you know, she's motivated by the desire for a kind of identification with Christ that, in in some ways, is motivating the heretics who are destroyed by the Albigensians, and is also at, at around the same time motivating um, Saint Francis. And what's so interesting about this period of history is that the the yearning to identify with um, and emulate the sufferings of Christ on occasion is branded by the church as heresy and on other occasions is saluted by them as the behaviour of saints. So Francis of Assisi becomes a saint and so does Elizabeth of Hungary. And she does so as a, as a, um, a, a person of high birth, royal birth, who nevertheless is anxious i think uh you know she she bears in mind that the, the, the first shall be last and so she kind of casts herself down she humiliates herself she humbles herself she has a very brutal instructor uh who who flogs her and who tells her to go and work in a hospital basically as a kind of the lowest kind of orderly uh i mean not even as a nurse as a kind of you know working in the kitchen um hugging lepers with their sores to her breast mopping their brow and you're right that that kind of behavior would 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 have made no sense at all to anyone before the christian period at all um and i in case you know people listening or reading this today think well that sounds pathological she sounds absolutely insane um she is very clearly, I think, a, a precursor of all kinds of, of movements that are current today. So one of the things that that marks Elizabeth out is that um, she uh, she refuses to eat food that comes from her husband's peasantry that have kind of been extorted from them. She will only eat food that um, has been ethically sourced, if you want to put it like that. Um, and so today, if you know, if you're vegetarian or you're worried about um where you where the things that you're buying uh, in 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 shops come from you are the heir of elizabeth she tried to actually extract herself from the 
explo- exploitation of, of feudalism as, as much yes, as possible. basically. Yeah, she, she um, I suppose, rather in the way today that, that, that people reject capitalism, that they... Um, they see it as, as so inherently exploitative that um, to, to, be, to participate in it is to be complicit. So similarly, Elizabeth saw, um, saw feudalism in much the same way. Um, I mean, that's what she was trying to escape. And she was escaping towards the suffering Christ. She felt that she was beckoned by the suffering Christ. And you can see why for the medieval authorities, this kind of approach would be troubling, would, would seem dangerous. Uh, and why, you know, Elizabeth and Francis of Assisi become saints. Others, others get, others die for it. Others per- perish for it. That kind of embrace of suffering, uh, rejection of the um, the privileges and the pleasures of of uh, of the earthly world, you know, persistently has been a cause of of, of anxiety and trouble to earthly authorities. You know, as it is to this day. Looking back at a Francis of Assisi or Elizabeth of Hungary, who are both canonized, you, you can kind of think it was a, a safe, pious path. But as you say, there were others uh, um, who were viewed as those threatening that they were actually uh, persecuted. Right. So, in all ways, there was no guarantees for somebody like Elizabeth that she would. You know, be honored after her death as well. I, I, you know, I, I, I think her royal status actually helped her. So mm-hmm. she was, she was privileged in her embrace of a lack of privilege, if you like, rather in the way that, um, you know, if you're if you're um, a graduate, the son of um, highly high earning, high achieving parents, and you. I don't know, do some environmental protest, you're likelier to get off than than if you're, you know, from the streets. Well, while we're ta- talking about royalty, let's look at one final figure, uh, also a woman uh, who died last year, Queen Elizabeth II, who, of course, did not uh, give away all her wealth or serve in a hospital. But this struck, struck me there's something about her life that is only explicable from a from a Christian lens and an embrace of of many things that were actually quite unpleasant. Yeah, I mean, it, it might sound ridiculous to say <laughs> that the Queen, uh, who was one of the richest people in the world... We're deliberately being a bit ridiculous uh, yeah, here. Yeah, that, that, that uh, her life was one of suffering. I, I mean, I think, you know, if boredom is suffering... Um, and that was quite an existential theme, wasn't it, in the in the 20th century? The idea that that the worst suffering is boredom. You could make the case that um, that the Queen <laughs> actually suffered quite a lot because she led quite a boring life. I mean, she she um, she was kind of she felt herself wedded to it, and she absolutely did so as a Christian. Um, for her, her her coronation oaths were a kind of sacrament. I mean, not a kind of, they were a sacrament. She'd been anointed by God and she had been wedded to her role. And she felt that very, very powerfully, very strongly. Um, Every uh, Christmas she would broadcast a message um, in Britain. And it was noticeable that over the course of her life, the older she got, the more overtly Christian that message became. Um, And in many ways, I think she was uh, one of the most impressive people for Christianity in contemporary Britain. Um, 
And, you know, there was never any question that she would ever abdicate, that she would kind of wind down, that she would um, hand over to uh, to a younger man because um, she felt that she'd taken the coronation oath and she had to hold to it. Now, um, I, I, I can imagine all kinds of people in America snorting at the idea that monarchy is a kind of suffering. But I think perhaps to a degree it is actually. Well, at, at least it struck me that there is an analogy to a vow of religious life, which comes, yeah, yeah. which comes, uh, perhaps suffering is a big word, but certainly yeah, self abnegation. I think, I think when she died, the, the the rituals and the ceremony that for a fortnight in Britain accompanied her, you know, the obsequies. I think lots of people found themselves surprised by how moved they were. Um, Britain is a very, very secular society, kind of in some ways an aggressively secular society. But those two weeks for, between her death and her funeral, I think enabled people in Britain and perhaps beyond Britain as well to have a sense of the strangeness that the queen herself was wedded to. And of course it was a, a, a Christian strangeness. Um, and to find that that at the very heart of the state, I think people were, were they were surprised by it. And I think, as I say, quite a lot of people were, were moved by it as well. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast needs met and share with your friends. For a lot more content like this, check out plow.com for the digital magazine. You can also subscribe. $36 a year will get you the print magazine or for $99 a year, you can become a member of plow. That membership carries a whole range of benefits from free books to regular calls with the editors to invitations to special events and the occasional gift. Our members are one aspect of the broader Plow community, and we depend on them as a kind of extra advisory council. Go to plow.com slash membership to learn more. On our next episode, we'll be speaking with Plow's own Joy Clarkson about the Ober Ammergau passion play and more generally about portrayals of suffering in Christian art.